Well, if you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word, First John, we are in First John chapter 2, we'll be in uh, chapter 2 starting in verse 18, verse 18 is where we will begin. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received, that you received from Him, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Grass withers, a flower fades, and the word of our God abides forever. And we also need the work of the Spirit of God in our lives to open our eyes to this word as we come to it. So let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would be at work in our hearts and in our minds that you would strengthen me, that you would fill me with your spirit this morning to proclaim your word clearly, truthfully, Lord, that it would fall on ears ready to hear and hearts soft to receive the implanted word. So Lord, be at work this day, we pray in Christ's name, amen. What was July of last year in Cedar Hills, Utah? that a dog named Ella showed very much how well she loved her family. Ella was in the backyard playing while the kids were out there, and she all of a sudden became very alert. Family had a visitor, a mountain lion. Now, mountain lion attacks on humans are are fairly rare, but quite scary nonetheless. And eventually, um, in this whole thing, Ella would, would glance at the mountain lion and then quickly look back at the kids and then glance back and forth, and finally... The daughter caught wind of what was going on and was smart enough to usher the rest of the family into the house, all while Ella sat there and stood watch. And apparently once inside, an attack ensued. Family didn't exactly realize it until Ella came to the door, bloody and scarred, all on her front side. And the vet said that because it was all on her head and the front side, that what it meant was she stayed in a protective stance the entire time. She kept the family right behind her. Even though they're in the house and safe, she kept them behind her and protected them. She had over 30 cuts on her body. She made a full recovery, just so you know, but she, she protected them. It's a beautiful thing to see that kind of loyalty and love and sacrifice, and just so you know, not to leave cat owners out. I saw a video not too long ago. It was back in, I think, 2014, but the video was of a boy in Bakersfield, California. He was riding his little, like, scoot bike, you know, with no pedals and no training wheels or whatever in his front yard. 
and the neighbor's dog got loose and came over and started to bite him and yank him off the bike. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you see this cat go, boom, right into the side of the dog and then chase the dog away and they're able to get inside. Now, it still doesn't make me want a cat, but I can rejoice when something like that happens nonetheless. But seeing that protection and the care that that dog and the cat showed, you know, here's, you might think it's, it reminds me of John again. It reminds me of John and what he is doing in this letter, and very specifically in these verses, he is caring for, he is, he is protecting his people, he's protecting God's children. If you look at verse 26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He's trying to protect them from the deceivers. He's warning them, instructing them, protecting them. John Calvin wrote in regard to this, we ought always to bear in mind that it's the duty of a good and diligent pastor not only to gather a flock, but also to drive away wolves. For what will it avail to proclaim the pure gospel if we connive at the impostures of Satan? No one then can faithfully teach the church except he is diligent in banishing heirs whenever he finds them spread by seducers. John's diligence. He's instructing them and reassuring them. He desires that they would be both uh, acquainted and aware of what's going on in their midst, what's going on in their midst, what's, what's true of them, and then he calls them, abide in that truth. So he wants them acquainted and aware with what all is going on and then says, abide in the truth. Now, he doesn't call for anything intricate super detailed in this. It's actually pretty simple, but it's vital nonetheless. He cares enough for them that he doesn't want them uh, to, to be a people disturbed in their faith or deceived into believing lies. So we're going to jump in and see what John said, not only to the church he loved personally, but to us as we read these words inspired by God's Spirit today. So look again at verse 18 and 19. Children, it's, it is the last hour. And as if you have heard the, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. From the beginning of this section, John uses language that, uh, folks, we need to be on the same page about what he's saying. And there's, there, there's really two words or two phrases that we have to acquaint ourselves with. It's the last hour and Antichrist. What does he mean by those things? So, the last hour. Well, John's pretty distinct in his usage of this phrase in the New Testament. Now, it obviously does not mean the final 60 minutes. If it did, there's absolutely no reason for him to write a letter because it never would get to his recipients or to us. So, it cannot mean that. The terminology actually falls within the context of what we call eschatology, eschaton being the, the last things, the end, so it is the doctrine of the last things or the doctrine of the end times. And what it refers to is that we are now, they were then, and we are now in that final stage of God's dealing with the world. The time between the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, his, his return to heaven, and the time when he will return at, at a second coming and make all things new. We are in that time between. And we have to understand that Scripture does not affix a time period in which this last hour or, or the last days will be completed. We are in them now, 
And we are called to long for, and, uh, long for the return of Christ, to live righteous lives, but not to try and predict when it will come. So that is the Lord's sovereign realm, not ours. Ours is to be faithful and to remain true to what we have come to know in the gospel. And then that leads us to the second term, antichrist. Now boy, can that term stir up some thoughts in our minds. Now many assume that this term is all over Scripture. It's not. You've read almost every time the word antichrist is found in Scripture right here. The only other time is in John's second letter in verse 7. It's not even found in the book of Revelation, which is where most of you probably think it was. Now, the concept idea, though, is pretty prevalent throughout Scripture, but the term is only used here. So what is Antichrist? Well, this is more a principle or a spirit or an idea than it is a specific person. Now, there is a man of lawlessness. There's things like that. Don't need to get into that. But this idea of Antichrist is more an idea, a principle. And you can see that from what he writes just a few verses on from here. Verse 22, he says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. That language is not of a specific person, but of any person, any person who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Then in 4.3, he writes, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. And then John's second letter in verse 7, he writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. In essence, those who are Antichrist are those who hold and teach a, a distorted view or distorted understanding of Jesus' person and nature. Okay? One commentator said, by John's definition, anyone who professes to be a follower of Christ but teaches a Christology not in keeping with the apostolic tradition is indeed an antichrist, someone who opposes the truth of God in Christ. My family will be not surprised that I say this, but someone like Oprah who says that she follows Christ but does not follow the Christ of Scripture is Antichrist. And there are many, many others like that who say, we're spiritual, we follow Jesus, we love Jesus, but they don't follow the Jesus of Scripture. And they teach a distorted view of who Christ is. Now, I do like to help you with good resources. And if any of you have the ESV Study Bible, in the back of it is a huge section um, dealing with doctrine and ethics and, and many other things. And it has a great section on doctrine, particularly on the nature of Jesus and Christology. And near the beginning of that section, it states this. It says, four statements must be understood and affirmed in order to attain a complete biblical picture of the person of Jesus. And they give four statements. One, Jesus Christ is fully and completely divine. Fully and completely divine. Two, Jesus Christ is fully and completely human. Three, the divine and human natures of Christ are distinct. And four, the divine and human natures of Christ are completely united in one person. Those are four things that we are to know and to believe. That's just a start, but it's important. Throughout church history, heirs relating to who Christ um, is 
were, were rampant and they were dealt with in many times at, at different church councils. I'm just going to give you a few of them. Ebionism denied the deity of Christ. Arianism denied the full deity of Christ. Docetism and Apollinarianism, you've got to love to say that word, both denied the true humanity of Christ. Nestorianism denied the unity of the natures in one person, and Eutychianism denied the distinction of the nature. Now, very few of you have heard those terms. It's totally fine. But I will tell you this. We have modern-day Arians walking around knocking on your door. They're called Jehovah's Witnesses. They're modern-day Arians. They are heretical in their teaching. They are anti-Christ. There's also Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They have completely errant views of who Jesus is, of who God is, of who man are. They, as well, are anti-Christ. They are. And it's something that we need to know and understand. If we know the truth well, we can then recognize the falsehood. So we must know the truth. Now back to John then. What he is then telling the believers is that the presence of those who are antichrist is actually evidence of this being the last hour. Okay? But he also makes clear to them that they have left, that those who are antichrist have left. They went out. They have left the fellowship, the community of Christ, and he makes a simple but profound statement that if those who went out had actually been of the believing community, guess what? They would have stayed. They would have stayed. They would have persevered. Jesus tells us in John 10, 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Is any of us powerful enough to snatch out of Jesus' hand? No. No. He's, Jesus is speaking of his sheep, of those he is called to himself. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17 deals with perseverance, perseverance of the saints. In paragraph one, it says this, they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Further, we read in the second paragraph, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God, the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. It is God's work in us. It is, it is many will like to say, the preservation of the saints, that God preserves his saints. This is an absolutely important doctrine to understand and to grasp. John wants us to grasp that. He writes that we may know, that we may be assured. You see, endurance or perseverance is the hallmark of those who truly know Christ. Believers may go through various temptations. That will happen. And at times, believers will be neglectful of the call placed on their lives. They may wander away for a time, but they will finally be preserved and they will persevere. Now, on those who went out, though, they left of their own volition. And again, their leaving revealed something. Like I said, they revealed that they weren't of the people of God. And John wants his readers not to be led astray. 
He's trying to say, they left because they actually weren't part of you. Don't follow after them. Don't. He doesn't want them going after them or listening to those who have left and what they believe. They're trying to deceive him. We see that in verse 26. So in some sense, the church should actually be glad that these deceivers have left. We should not mourn the loss of a wolf trying to devour the sheep. We can continue to pray for them, pray that God would work, but we do not want the wolf in the midst of the sheep. No good shepherd would ever do that. Say, well, you know what, he looks, he looks hungry and kind of sweet. Let's just let him come on in, lay down next to the, the sheep. I'm sure he'll be fine. No good shepherd would ever do that. We do not want a wolf amongst the sheep. I also want to say something that I think we neglect too much in the church. We often hear about church scandals and false teaching. That's the thing that gets the headlines, isn't it? So-and-so did this, or so-and-so is teaching this whacked-out view. But what we need to hear more about in the church and rejoice are of those who persevere in the long obedience in the same direction. We should have more stories about that. Let's rejoice in those who have run the race and continue to run it to the finish line even when it's hard. Someone who starts off in a marathon and runs the first three miles at a five-minute pace and then just stops, you're not rejoicing at that. But the person who runs a nine-minute mile the whole way or a 10 or 12 or a 15 but makes it to the finish line, there's rejoicing at that. It doesn't matter how quick we run that race. Let's rejoice that we run and we finish the course. Let us make that our aim. Well, let's look now at verses 20 and 21. John writes, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Here again, he's encouraging them, and he wants them to be more and more aware of what they have. They have been anointed by the Holy One. Now, here again is a phrase I think we need to clarify, because what does John mean by this? John has just moved from writing about Antichrist, okay, so in Greek, Antichristos, um, and, and, uh, and he's moving to those who have been anointed. The Greek word for anointed is chrisma, okay, and it's, it's only used here, so you can see kind of this connection between Antichristos and Chrisma, the, the anointed. Now, why John uses this word? Because it is the only time it's used. We don't know. Perhaps this word was used by those who went out that said they have received a Chrisma, a, a, an anointing that has given them a different idea or a different teaching. That's, if that's why John uses it, actually why he's using it is to make a point, and he's saying that a Christian is anointed by Christ. Being anointed is actually what enables us to believe and confess what we've heard from the beginning, the truth about Jesus in the gospel. The Heidelberg Catechism actually refers to this and uses this language. Question 32 asks, but why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Too often we hear this term anointed 
used in a way that's, that's really foreign to Scripture. I, I can understand why it's said sometimes the way it is, but things like calling sermons or services or preaching or, or just about anything else anointed is not the way Scripture uses the term. It's not the way Scripture uses the term. How John uses this is actually similar to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22, where, where Paul wrote, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us, and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. One commentator wrote, said, This anointing, then, has little to do with whether or not the presence or power of God exudes from us, Rather, it has to do with the Spirit who leads us into all truth. The anointing in this context is more cognitive, what the Spirit has led us into, than expressive, what it seems to be producing out. So this anointing is the Spirit of God, actually, given to the children of God. It's the Spirit who, as I've said, leads us into all truth. We see that in John 14 and John 16. So John then, John then says that believers all have knowledge. Now, this doesn't believe that, mean that believers know all, but that they know the truth. In a sense, you could kind of put it colloquially, that they're in the know. The believers are in the know. They have been taught the truth, they know it, and the Spirit, the anointing, leads them in the discerning of the truth. It, the, the, the Spirit confirms that in their lives. And this is why he writes to them. You see, you see that follow-up? He, he, he says, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you do. I don't have to reteach you this necessarily. Okay? What, what, what those who went out, the, the secessionists, those people who left, they were teaching a lie. They were teaching falsehood about Jesus. And he wants them to know that. He's restating then what they know. He's restating what they know, but sometimes we all know this. It takes an outside voice to speak into us to restate what we already know. Because too often we can listen to the voice in our own head that's not necessarily the right voice, that is not speaking truth, and you need somebody from the outside to speak it into you. It's why we need to hear the gospel. It's why we need every Sunday and why we need daily to read God's word. We need that, that truth spoken into us. We need to hear the word of God. That's the voice of God in your life. And then John restates more specifically about who this liar is. Again, verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The reality is, those who deny Jesus is the Christ, that he is who he claimed to be, they actually deny the Father as well. And, and we don't know exactly who these secessionists were, who these people who went out, but if they were of a Jewish background, John is actually telling the church, they're not leaving to go back to the Father, they're actually running away from the Father by running away from the Son. In their denial of the Son, they are denying the Father. But if you confess the Son, you have the Father also. So John is confirming what is true, and now he moves into what he's calling them to do. Moving into what he calls them to do. So look at verse 24. We'll read through the end of this section. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Hopefully, as read through that again, you caught some repetition. You caught words that are repeated. That's always a good thing to look for in reading scriptures, to find those repeated words. The big one is abide, isn't it? Abide. Maybe your copy of, maybe your translation might say remain, but abide. And there are a few points in these verses that flow out of one main point. The one main point is abide in the truth. Abide in the truth. John wants his readers to remember the gospel, remember that which they have heard from the beginning, the right and true teaching about Jesus. So he wants them to know that which from the beginning. Now, this is not saying that just because something is old, it's good. And therefore, we we ought to hold on to it. Rather, as he's already established in this letter, he's saying, you should hold on to this that you heard from the beginning because it's true. It's what has been passed on from Jesus himself through the apostles. Hold on to that which is the apostolic teaching. Hold on to that which is true. Yet it's a little more than just hold on to it, isn't it? He says, abide in it. He wants them to stay in it, to remain grounded in that truth. And abiding is a long process. Maybe you could think about it this way, or at least I will think about it, and my family will snicker, but think of it as smoking a pork shoulder, okay? If you know anything about smoking meat, it's, you want it to stay on for a long time. In a sense, the more it stays on, the more it abides in that flavor. The flavor that smoke, it saturates into the pork. So in the context of our Christian life, the word, prayer, sacraments, those are to abide in us. We are to abide in them. Let them wash over us, penetrate our very beings so that our lives exude God's truth. You want to remain in them. Spurgeon wrote this of John Bunyan, John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He said this, he said, read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like the the reading, uh, the, the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. He says this, prick him anywhere, his blood is biblene. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. Spurgeon is saying, Bunyan abided in the truth. He remained to the point where he just exuded it. Okay, I know when I'm done smoking something, that smoke is all over me. I can tell. I'll take a shower later that night, and I'm like, just wash off the smoke. It just flows. And I I want that from us with God's word and God's truth, that it just flows, that it exudes, that that there's almost a palpable smell of God with us and his truth. See, John is telling his readers to persevere in the truth to remain in it. He wants it to be an inflexible perseverance. 
that flows from their abiding. When they hear all the noise around them that denies Christ, and there is plenty of noise in our lives, in our world that denies Christ. What are we to do to defend ourselves? Hold on to what you have. Revelation 3.11 talks about it. It talks about, uses the language of be an overcomer. Revelation does throughout. So we are to hold on to what we have known from the beginning of the gospel. We are to treasure the biblical message that we have heard. Let it reside in our souls. Let it control all that we do. And the fruit of that abiding is remaining and being in fellowship with the Father and the Son. This is the work of God's Spirit, too. It's the work of the full Trinity. The Spirit directs our hearts into all truth, fosters communion with the Father and the Son, and the promise for those who abide is eternal life. But again, here before, remember what we read in the confession, that it's the covenant of grace, it's God's work in our lives. Yes, we're called to abide, but He abides in us. He remains in His people. Well, then we come to verse 27. In verse 27, you can see the connection back to verse 20 because you see the word anointing again, that inward witness of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in our lives, abiding in us as believers. But then John says something else that could be a little bit more confusing. He says, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Now, what is John saying here? First, about teaching. Is John telling us that instruction is irrelevant? You're going to guess that my answer is no, (laughs) or I wouldn't be up here, and you wouldn't be here. See, Jesus instructed his disciples and his apostles to teach all that they have learned from him, to teach, to, to disciple. So what is John saying? He's saying here in this context, this is why context is so important in reading Scripture. You could pull this out of context and have a, a pretty fun time, I guess. I don't know. But you want to keep it in context. He's saying, hey, don't, you, you don't need what these deceivers are teaching. You have the truth. You have been led into all truth. Do not follow after those who teach an antichrist view. The Spirit, the anointing, has led you into all truth. Remain in that truth. And there's a picture of fulfillment here too. So any reader that first would have heard this, they probably would have thought of the prophet Jeremiah and the the new covenant promise that's given there in chapter 31. I'll just read verses 33 and 34. So this is in the book of Jeremiah. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will give their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See, God will write his law on his people's hearts through the work of the Spirit, and the people are now, much like the temple, we have the law of God within us and the Spirit of God at work. The working of God's Spirit, it's his anointing. The Spirit will not teach a lie, and we are to abide in him. And I didn't read it earlier, but I do want to read verse 28, because in many ways, verse 28 is a transitional verse. It it both connects to what we have and what we've been going through, and it'll lead us into the next. And so we'll look at it as well next week. 
But he writes this, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You see it connect back to this idea of the last hour and, and the end, uh, the, the coming of Christ. The call, though, that I want us to see in that verse is abide. Abide so that we will not shrink away in shame and in fear at his coming. But we know that he holds us fast because we have remained in him. We have held on to him and he has held tightly on to us. There is no fear, no shame, no shrinking, merely a joyous and exuberant welcoming of the Lord when he returns. In many ways, it's, I don't want to say it's a reward, but it's the, it's the fruit of the inflexible perseverance. See, John is calling us to know the truth and to abide in it. Some of that truth is knowing and being assured that those who were in Christ will remain in Christ. Not because of our power, but because of the power and promise of Christ that Christ will never forsake his people. That no one will snatch us out of his hands. That he will hold us fast. John wants his readers, he wants us to know, he wants us to rest content in the work of the Lord. Content in what we've heard from the beginning. Content in the apostolic teaching. Not, not chasing after something shiny and new but resting and abiding in the truth, pursuing and abiding in him. That's what he calls us to. And in that, to live that life of inflexible perseverance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for your work in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would grow us, that you would empower us, that you would help us to truly abide in Christ all the days of our lives, to rest, rest content, but inflexibly persevere in the truth that we've heard from the beginning in the gospel, in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen.